Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, upheaval at ABC's Radio National. Is ABC management guilty of breaching the public broadcaster's charter? And are the recent changes an indication of the future of linear broadcasting? Plus, will the freedom and safety of the Fourth Estate be guaranteed in a Trump administration? And will more videos on social media change the way reporters gather news? Joining me in the studio is Steph Hunt, Storyful's Australia editor, and from Huffington Post Australia, associate editor Josh Butler. Joining us on the line from Melbourne is Misha Ketchell, the managing editor of The Conversation. Let's get started. Last week, staff at ABC's Radio National passed emotions of no confidence in senior management after another round of job cuts and the axing of several shows. The motion was passed in regards to what RN staff described as a continuing erosion of specialist programming and breaching of the ABC charter, thereby failing the Australian audiences that the organisation is funded to serve. Veteran broadcaster Siobhan McHugh described a toxic atmosphere at RN, characterised by a division between the digital-first operations of the network, which make many RN podcasts, and the long-standing producers, presenters and sound engineers of RN's linear content. Misha, do you think the recent changes at Radio National amount to the gutting of a cultural treasure trove, as Siobhan described it? Well, let's put it this way. I don't think anyone's too happy about them. You know, the movement sort of towards a more purely talk-focused approach where they're going to lose a lot of the music shows and they're losing a lot of that specialist content does seem to be something that audiences and me as a listener aren't happy about. Um, But but the flip side is that um, people who run... Um, radio networks do need to be able to make decisions about programming from time to time. So I think it's also possible to overstate the extent to which these changes represent sort of a watershed for RN. Steph, RN's type of specialists and feature programs that explore subjects like politics, history, art and science are rarely found on commercial radio stations. If these producers aren't engaging large audiences, why should the ABC continue to produce them? I think any loss of jobs in the journalism industry is is horrible. No one wants to see that at all. I think as well, if we're sort of seeing people who are highly experienced or experts in a range of... um, of, of different different kind of backgrounds. It's it's really sad to see people like that leave the industry. There's a real danger of, I guess, having a, a somewhat echo chamber where we're just sort of seeing the same information or the same type of stories or the same type of podcasts or the same type of sort of radio shows sort of popping up. And to to lose those niche or the individual experts or voices can be a, you know, it, it can be a, a sad thing. Josh, many people both within RN and outside it lamented the axing of John Cleary's specialist religion and ethics show, Sunday Nights. Do you have any ideas as to why that decision was taken and why there was such an outcry? 
Um, it's interesting because, like, you look at the world today, and so much of, I guess, what we call, you know, conflict. So much of of what sort of is going on today can be sort of tied back to religion. We look at, you know, the the conflicts around Islam and around Judaism and all these sort of things that are happening in the world now. A lot of these um, conflicts, wars, and sort of thing can be traced back, you know, maybe over many, many sort of hundreds or thousands of years to religion. I guess so. Religion is a really important thing, and while it might not be everyone's sort of cup of tea, like there are a lot of people in the country who are religious. I'm not one of them, but there, there are lots of people who are. And I think it's probably good to have a place to sort of talk about that sort of content, I guess. And there, I can't really think of many other sort of programs that do sort of tackle that, that sort of area. So I'm not a big fan of that particular show myself. But look, I can sort of understand why there is an outcry. I can sort of see why it is sort of an important facet of what Radio National does. And it is so interesting to hear all the different voices. And you want to hear from all the different religions. You don't just want a, a single, single sort of echo chamber or a single one type of take on one type of religion. Yeah, you know, you go to any any dinner party and you mention religion and suddenly, bang, it's everyone has everyone wants to talk about it. And even in, like, I guess, you know, sort of looking at domestic politics, you know, you look at issues like same-sex marriage, issues like the Safe Schools Program, that sort of thing. Like, a lot of the criticism and a lot of the, um, I guess, debate about, around them is sort of tied in with religion. It's probably good to have a chamber to talk about that sort of thing, to explore those sort of issues. And, and I guess, as, as Misha mentioned, it, I mean, it, we're in a funny, changing, evolving world of media and it, it is it is cutthroat so I can understand jobs have to sometimes go in different circumstances. Now it wasn't all bad news there were some positive changes there was a the creation of an indigenous unit that will have three junior producer positions but some of the seasoned staff at RN see that uh, move as less of a fresh approach and more a recruitment of cheap labour. Misha do you agree with that? Well I think it's hard to argue that junior Producers would be cheaper to hire than senior producers. Whether that's the agenda or not is another matter. I and mean, when you're employing three junior producers, that's a substantial number, and setting up that unit is a good thing. And also, I mean, there are a range of demographic issues you've got to think about here. The ABC's audience does skew sort of old, um, and the ABC has been accused of being somewhat monocultural. So getting in some younger um, producers who are going to be working on Indigenous coverage seems to me like a sort of a sensible um, aspect of tweaking the offering and the range of things that are available. Well, and related to that, to a younger audience, Fairfax uh, reported last week that RN was preparing to move to being a primarily digital network led by podcasts rather than a linear broadcaster, which perhaps can be seen to catering to a younger audience. Uh, but that story was later removed from the Fairfax website. The Guardian, however, made a similar prediction, but the ABC has denied these claims. Uh, if RN was to move to a digital-only model based on podcasts, Josh, would that be a bad thing? Um it depends what sort of show you're looking at, I think. You know, like I listen to, you know, Drive and Breakfast and all those sort of ones in the morning. I, I, I write a lot about politics and that sort of thing. And, you know, you get the, the politics of the day. You get the, you know, the controversial MP who's embroiled in some scandal. He's on, get on in the morning trying to explain himself. Or you have, you know, days where you have something like the ABCC bill sort of passing. You'd have someone like Michaelia Cash who would probably be doing the rounds on RN and that sort of thing as well. So I think if it was a podcast... For those really newsy events, maybe people wouldn't so much go for them. But if it was something like the religion show, if it was something like the here's the the country hour, or here's the you know the rural affairs farming hour, or whatever it is, maybe those sort of ones would work really well, maybe for a podcast. But yeah, I think the the new sort of making events where you know there'll be a, an interview on RN on on breakfast or on drive or whatever it is, and it, like every political outlet in the country sort of leading with that story. You know, here's what Peter Dutton said on RN, or here's what, you know, so-and-so said on RN. Um, I, I think those sort of really political, really newsy ones, I don't think they should go to a podcast sort of style, but 
there probably will be programs I think in there that that would go really well and would have no issue at all sort of moving across to that pre-record sort of online find it at your own sort of pleasure style. In addition to the rumours that are in, last week we also saw Southern Cross Radio sign a deal with the US podcasting platform Podcast One. And I'm wondering, do you think linear radio will exist in the future or will the majority of audio be consumed on demand as podcasts? I'm a a massive fan of podcasts, love it, totally addicted. On the flip side, I grew up in the bush and growing up on weekends and school holidays, I'd be with dad, we'd be fencing out you know, in the paddocks and you'd have the ute turned on you have the the radio going country hour radio national you know all all day long in areas where the internet's really really bad so there's a there's a there's a chance that perhaps if you do go to a a podcast system that there you know that there are people that won't have access to good internet or the older the older guys might sort of struggle to to know how to download podcasts so there's there's a, a flip side but we are in a you know a digital revolution where i think i think that's the way that everything's going and I guess even more basic than that, you know, with a podcast, you kind of have to search it out yourself. You have to look for it. You have to search for it. You have to find it on the website. You have to download it to your phone. Radio is not like that. A radio, you can just switch it on and whatever's going, you just sort of listen to it. Like you say, you know, you can have it in the background while you're working. You have to back it in the background while you're in the car. Like there might be sort of passive listening to that where you're not really kind of taking much in. But like, you know, I know the one I'm, oh, I'm in the car, I'm just a bit bored. You're like, you don't like having, you know, silence or whatever. Like you just turn it on to have some sort of noise in the background. And like, I don't think, I think there will still be that, that desire to have that sort of thing. But I think that's really nice. And everything now is so geared towards um, what the user wants. So even with Facebook, with you know algorithms, you're getting information and stories are popping up purely based around what you like and what you want. And sometimes it's just really nice and surprising to just flick on the radio and then suddenly an interesting interview comes on with someone who you you know you've never you didn't know about. You weren't or like pre- a song that you'd never heard before. Exactly or something right. Like, yeah, it, yeah. I think you need some stuff that breaks into your world that you haven't sort of custom chosen curated for yourself exactly you're listening to fourth estate you're listening to fourth estate you're with me olivia rosenman and i'm speaking to steph hunt josh butler and misha ketchell in the u.s journalists have faced a peculiar set of challenges this year with the election of donald trump his trademark attacks and restrictions on journalists and the media are likely to continue possibly with even harsher consequences in october the committee to protect journalists issued an unprecedented statement describing trump as a threat to press freedom unknown in modern history last week christian amampur the chief international correspondent of cnn international appealed for the protection of the freedom and safety of american journalists in their home country Fox News host Sean Hannity said that biased media that openly opposed Trump shouldn't have the privilege of covering the president on behalf of the American people. Josh, how much responsibility does the Trump team hold for turning citizens against journalists? It's really difficult. Like that, that's something I've been thinking about for for a while. It's like you know how much have how much have journalists sort of done to themselves almost, and how much has I guess Trump sort of done it. Like you know you look at the Trump rallies and that sort of thing. I read I just read this really interesting article the week talking about how the fact that the rallies he sort of penned he actually put them in these sort of fenced in pens at the back and he often said to the crowd who were really amped up and he's talking about lying Hillary and lying to all these people he's like there's a journalist at the back like there they are and you've got everyone sort of turn around and look at them and sort of point at them and then like that obviously sort of led people to you know start throwing things at them and start spitting at them and whatever it was so I think like obviously Trump has 
foster that sort of hostility to the journalists and like he calls out people on Twitter even though when they're not wrong even though when they are absolutely correct even when they are just asking legitimate questions they'll say you're a bad journalist that's terrible journalism you're biased all that sort of stuff but I mean that's the, I think that's the question that journalists kind of have to be looking at themselves as well through this sort of time like you know what have journalists done like how do they treat Trump how did they treat the people that support Trump I'm, I'm not trying to you know be an apologist for what Trump said about journalists I'm far from it but at the same time journalists and, and politicians everyone is sort of grappling with how do we do politics how do we report on politics in this sort of world we have people like Donald Trump and people like One Nation that sort of thing that are tapping into that real deep-seated resentment that a lot of people have felt for a very long time and they finally have some politicians that you know they, they feel are kind of really catering to their interests I think and that sort of thing so at some point that's be a conversation about what has been done to journalists and sort of what journalists have almost done to themselves in a way. And uh, Hannity also said that it's time to reevaluate the relationship between the press and the White House. And you can almost imagine that being something that Trump very much takes on board. Steph, how important is it for journalists to have access to the White House? I think journalists having access to the White House is, is very important, clearly. I think they um, need to have a relationship with the party in power but they need to be asking the tough questions. They need to be in there acting as journalists and not just, you know, regurgitating party lines. And it's not a privilege, I don't think, that journalists have access to the White House or to Parliament House here or to anything like that. It's, It's public interest. Like, you know, these people are supposedly doing the work for the public. They're, you know, they're representing the public. It's not like, you know, you get exclusive access to like backstage to a concert or something like that or a festival or a performance but I I feel like this sort of journalism we talk about the White House Parliament House and that sort of thing like it's it's a higher standard and without kind of getting all sort of misty-eyed about journalism like it's a noble sort of thing and it's it's not just something that anyone should be able to kind of take away and say oh look you you've you've lost your privileges to do that like you you were mean to me and you that with the Washington Post whatever got up and started making up lies like yeah that's one thing but it shouldn't be Trump just gets to say no to people he doesn't like. This is not a new thing. Like, this is not a new thing. Like, you know, politicians have had conflict with journalists since journalism and politics have been invented. And, you know, you look at scandals through the White House over all these years, like Bill Clinton and um, Richard Nixon and those sort of things. Like, I don't think those guys ever would have gone, look, let's just boot out the media that were writing mean things about us. They went, well, maybe we should stop doing bad things like it's it's a priv- it's it's not a privilege to have access to the white house i don't think it's 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 like it's public interest it's, it's uh, something that should just be an automatic but i do believe that you i, I agree but you, that you as a journalist you shouldn't be too cozy with with the party in power like you shouldn't be doing what you can to cozy up to them and to stay on their on their good side you need to be asking the, the tough questions and representing the public Sure. And I think, uh, you know, related to both Trump doing what he wants and journalists pandering to those desires, a group of network executives and anchors came under fire for attending an off-the-record meeting with Trump recently. Misha, to what extent do you think the journalists in America have made a huge mistake in letting President-elect Trump set the conditions of their relationship early on instead of resisting it from the get-go? Look, I think the journalists have been placed in a really difficult position because it suited Trump to attack journalists and reduce public's perception of journalism. Um, it reminds me of when the Australian Treasurer Joe Hockey said that fact-checkers are entitled to their opinion. And it was a very similar thing that went on in the US where Trump supporters were attacking the New York Times fact-checkers and, and basically arguing that they're all partisans and players. And if you reduce every journalist to a partisan and player, 
then it's easy to create an us and them mentality and dismiss them. But the reality is that journalists are supposed to be doing something more fundamental than that, and I think for a large part they are, which is trying to um, provide a flow of information on behalf of the audiences that they represent. And this tendency to portray journalists as, as partisans is a trashing of an institution that actually is vital for democracy and scrutiny. And you can kick the journalists all you want, and there are journalists who have been responsible perhaps for um, making those allegations valid, who have fallen short of the standards that we try to uphold in journalism. But that doesn't actually change the fact that properly functioning democracy, you have journalists who are independent of the government of the day, who are providing the public with vital information. I, I just find it sort of astonishing that we've even come to this point in the debate. Can I, can I make a point on that one as well? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure wh- how different it is in the US as opposed to here, but you know, I, I go to Canberra and I report from Parliament House whenever Parliament's on and that sort of thing. And from what I've only been there for, you know, just for this year, but from what I understand, like, and what my experiences have been, it's not uncommon to have off the record meetings with politicians, like, not, not at all. And especially when they've just taken office, um, it, it wouldn't be uncommon at all for a politician to say, look, let's have an off the record meeting, let's talk about the kind of access you'll have to me, let's talk about how we can sort of not, not work together in like a, like a colluding kind of conspiratorial sort of way but you know how how I can give you information when you need it and how you know you treat me and how we sort of deal with each other and who's the point person in my office and how you should deal with my office for certain inquiries and that sort of thing um there are often you know even sort of well-known events that journalists go to the politicians go to that are designated as off the record the the midwinter ball in parliament is a is a pretty notable one um where all the politicians and journalists and press guard that sort of thing get together and they have like a big ritzy sort of black tie dinner and ball and that sort of thing that's always off the record um this week um the prime minister himself is actually having uh, like a christmas drinks at the lodge that's off the record as well and uh, there are times when it probably is advantageous for journalists and politicians to have off the record meetings to talk bluntly so the politicians can sort of feel at ease to say things you know, again not in like a conspiratorial sort of way but feel free to say things without them being sort of taken out of context to speak plainly and not have to speak in you know high sort of fluting politician loopy language they can just say look here's what i'm thinking here's what we're going for this sort of thing and i think so i'm not sure how different it is in the u.s as opposed to here but it's not at all uncommon to have off the record meetings with politicians especially when they've just taken office Hostility uh, towards media isn't only bad for access, but it's also a threat to journalist safety. 2016 saw the rise of far-right mainstream politics, and according to the latest figures compiled by London-based Index on Censorship, 2016 was also one of the most dangerous years to be a journalist. Do you think that there is a direct link between those two? I guess sort of let's off let's face it, journalists have never been very popular, nor are they <laughs> meant to be. I mean, journalists always rank pretty much down there below or with used card salesmen on surveys that measure trust. And it's part of the nature of the job that when you're a journalist, part of your job is to write things that will upset people. I I think it's ever been thus, and I'm not sure necessarily whether Trump's particular poisoning of the waters is relating to or influencing particular safety issues. I mean, that may be true, but I just haven't seen strong evidence on it. So I think that underlining it, the more sort of significant trend is really this movement towards partisan journalism, partisan commentary, partisan reporting, and both the you know somebody like Trump who is characterising journalists as being either for him or against him, mm. as though they are protagonists in the stories that they are reporting on, 
And partly, um, you know, Trump is somewhat justified because we're living in a media age now where the views of journalists are more apparent and intertwined in their public communication. You do know what journalists think more, and that does mean that that role of sort of impartial reporter or that idea of objectivity or neutrality in reporting is harder to sustain. It's, but just because it's easy to attack and just because journalists often fall short of it doesn't mean that it's not a noble and valuable idea that, that shouldn't be pursued. I mean, I would hope that every professional journalist reporting in a media organisation aims to be you know, fair and balanced and objective, even if they know that they're never going to get there 100% of the time. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and I'm Olivia Rosenman. I'm speaking to Steph Hunt, Josh Butler, and Misha Ketchell. The use of videos of breaking news events uploaded to social media has become ubiquitous in TV news bulletins and online reports. Newsrooms are slowly but steadily realising the importance of verifying user-generated content, but as major social media platforms continue to prioritise video, it sometimes feels like they won't ever catch up. Corey Bergman, the general manager of BreakingNews.com, says video will soon become the central driver of breaking news coverage, rather than vision to support traditional news gathering. Corey describes video as the most natural and engaging way to observe and share the world around us. What makes video such a vital journalistic resource, Steph? Figures just released from the Pew Research Centre, they've shown that about 62% of US adults get their, their news from social media. So there's a huge, huge shift towards getting your news on your on your smart, on your phone, basically. So there's a, a massive, massive shift that we're seeing across the scale. And with that comes a massive focus on on video. Mm. Storyful is a company that is built on locating and verifying user-generated content from breaking news events. Can you speak a little bit to how that content is picked up and what is involved in the verification process? Yeah, so at Storyful, we are, we're online detectives. I guess that's sort of how we describe ourselves sometimes. Um, so we are, we were an Irish sort of startup company and we've now branched out to as there's offices in, in New York, in Hong Kong, London and here in Australia. So we're, we're constantly searching for, for great video content. Um, that's one side of the, the coin. The other side is we, we're all about verification. So there's so much noise online. As, as we all know. So we like to try and separate fact from fiction and we, uh, we we do it so that journalists can then use the videos that we find and they can confidently use the videos that we find and they know that they're accurate and that they're, they're real. So we're constantly checking, well, number one, the, the source of the video. So instead of just being a news outlet and just sort of running a, a video, we track down the, the actual person, the, the individual who filmed that video. So that's the source. We check out the date and also the the location as well. So we're on the phone talking to these people, basically just making it as easy as possible for journos who, you know, are under the pump, easy for them to use the video with confidence. So, Misha, with cameras infiltrating every space of our lives, from our homes to our cars to our workspaces, it's likely that soon we won't be asking if there's eyewitness video from a breaking news event, but how many there are to choose from. Do you think that's a good thing? I think it's disastrous. I think it's actually interesting because I, I sort of noticed almost subliminally that every second time I watch the commercial news, 
there was a story that involved a car crashing into a restaurant or a home or something, and there was a video footage of it. And I never really quite understood why these stories made the news, because I was like, why is that a big deal? Nobody was hurt. It wasn't, you know, nothing major happened. And then I was in a meeting where I was talking to one of the directors of one of the um, news at one of the TV commercial networks in Melbourne, who was telling me that whenever he recruits a new journalist, the key thing he is looking for is their capacity to source vision. And what they're looking for is things like people who can find, you know, the dash cam users mm. club that will be able to get them vision of interesting car crashes or things of, of that nature. The difficulty with that, with the tyranny of vision, is that it absolutely crowds out news values. I mean, the fact that somebody crashed into a fence or had a bingle is not of any great significance. It's not going to change anybody's life. It's not going to explain anything. It's not going to let people know about anything important. So to me, part of what this ubiquity or vision driving news coverage means is that news values and news judgments are being... Um, subsumed to, you know, basically to entertainment. And I just think it's appalling. I just don't think it helps us at all. On that point, that's really interesting what you bring up there. There's two points I want to make about that. There's one kind of a serious point and one that's um, about Anchorman. The, I guess the first one, like you're sort of saying there is, um, you know, we are seeing newsrooms shrinking. We're seeing, you know, newsrooms having to operate on ever sort of shrinking budgets and staffing numbers and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you're a TV news bulletin that goes for, you know, 25 minutes, something like that, you might have to come up with 12 or 15 stories. That means you have to have, you know, probably four or five, three or four crews out there shooting three or four stories a day, that sort of thing. If you only have two or three crews on a day, you go, oh, what can we, how can we fill in those extra couple of stories? I know, let's find a YouTube clip and run it and we'll do a voiceover from the from the host on it or we'll use one of those dash cam videos or we'll use some crazy video someone tweeted or whatever it is. So we're look, it, it's not just about, you know, let's fill up the air with these, you know, really kind of, you know, dramatic crashes or, you know, near misses, you know, Pram just missed by a speeding car on the street as it crashes into a McDonald's or whatever it is. It, it's you know it's about filling up, basically you know, pages or um, news bulletins or anything like that. But I guess the second point is there's that scene in uh, Anchorman Two where they're trying to um, get the ratings. They're on like you know two o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. They try to get the ratings to their show, and Ron Burgundy sees the the car chase on the on the on the the video screen. He goes, "Put it up on the screen," and the boss is like, "That's not news." And Ron Burgundy goes, "It is news. Throw it up." And everyone starts getting into it, and it's like it's not really news, but people are so keen, like, "Oh, it's awesome! It's this car chase," and it's the same sort of thing. It's like really cheap content that you know is so easy to do. It's very little work for the the journalists to actually do anything with and people are actually going to watch because who doesn't love watching a car crash or a car chase or a, you know whatever it is like it's it's two sort of things there but yeah it's it's entertaining but it's a race to the bottom and that's it yeah like you say you know you, you either you, you've got you know 15 stories to fill in on the on the news you can go well do we do the car crash or do we do some other story that's you know not going to get as many viewers and people aren't going to get as jazzed by but you know, it's probably more important. Like, it's it's that sort of value between, like, do you give people what they want to watch or give people what they probably should be watching? It's that sort of balancing act always with news. And the flip side, having worked in television, is that if you've got a good story and you don't have vision, you don't have a good story. Yeah. So, you know, things that are actually important often get crowded out because the vision is, is so poor. And if you think about when you watch a TV news bulletin, how many times 
you see shots of people walking in and out of buildings or exteriors of buildings or people with their heads cut off because there are so many stories that are so hard to illustrate with vision um, that you have to use sort of generic overlay. And that, and that creates a problem as well because it, it skews the news values um, and it means that the medium, you know, is dictating what's important as much as any sort of independent assessment of, you know, what we need to know about or what's important that's going on in the world that day. There are about a ten different sides to this um, to this discussion. I think with video, there's a, there is a real danger of being obsessed with cats and Kardashians, which nobody wants. But there's also a real opportunity to allow people who have never ever had a voice before to suddenly have their stories told. So we you know, we at Storyful we get videos coming out of Aleppo, coming out of the Middle East, coming out of South America, Africa, all over the world. So really um, sort of gripping, interesting stories that, you know, th- there's no way that these guys would have their stories told. So there are there are two sides. Yeah, I think that's great, that idea of democratisation of um, media and getting new voices in. I guess my observation from the media I consume has been I haven't seen as much of that as I have seen of you know, car crashes and cats and Kardashians, but, you know, hopefully that that will come with time. The other thing about vision is that it functions much more on an emotional level, which means it can easily be used in ways that are manipulative. Vision encourages people to think with their sort of emotional or gut reaction rather than sort of a more intellectual response. And I worry often about the use of vision. I mean, even down to, you know, we know that during election campaigns there is such careful engineering of visions down to, you know, leaders being advised whether to have their tie on or off or whether to wear a hard hat or what things to have in the background when they're appearing on the TV news. And that sort of um, manipulation is going on quite often in what you end up seeing on your television. And it's very um, powerful and it can function quite subliminally. I don't think that's new, though. I think that's been happening for a while, though. Oh, no, it's true, but I, I mm. guess what I'm just saying is that when you're comparing the way that vision operates um, as opposed to, say, other forms of reporting, say, print reporting, print reporting does, because of the way it's received by audiences, encourage a different type of response. Vision tends to want emotion. It tend, the two tend to go hand in hand. That's it from us at Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Steph Hunt, Josh Butler and Misha Ketchell. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast on iTunes and any other podcast provider. On the Money is up next. My name's Olivia Rosenman and you can catch us at the same time next week.